Lord Jesus, our faith comes through dwelling in the shadow of your presence. Our safety comes through dwelling in the shadow of your presence. God, everything that we have been promised in Scripture comes as we draw near to you, as we experience your presence, and we live out of that. So Lord Jesus, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that we would be blessed by your presence, that you would make yourself known to us in a new way, in a real way, that you would speak clearly to our hearts, and that you would use this time, God, to make us more like you, truly that we would walk out these doors a different people than walked in this morning because we've been in the presence of the Most High God. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray. You are already here, but we invite you work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. So as we start our new year, we're getting back uh, to walking through the book of Mark. Uh, the last two weeks, we kind of took a little time out uh, and we're focusing on a, a different message, a message of hope uh, as we ended 2020. But now it's time to get back into the book of Mark. Uh, and so where we are is Mark chapter 5. Uh, and I'm going to read for us, and it'll be up on the wall, the first 20 verses. So it's a, it's a longer story. Uh, and then we're going to kind of use it as our jumping off point for this morning. Uh, so read along with me in Mark chapter 5. Then they came out to the other side of the sea. If, if you remember, the, then they went. like uh, They have just crossed through uh, the Sea of Galilee, and this is when the raging storms came on, and the, the disciples were, Lord Jesus, we're going to drown, and they're freaking out. And Jesus, with a word, calms the storm in their midst. So they've just come off of this miraculous experience with Jesus, and this is them just coming to the other side of the lake. Then they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. The man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart, and he broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out, uh, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. 
As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged him to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. This is a story that most of us have heard before. Most of us have heard many times before. But let's take a minute and just kind of put ourselves there in the story. Sometimes with a really familiar story, it's easy to just kind of read through and miss it because you've heard it before, you've been through the Sunday school class, you've heard the sermons on it, and our brain just kind of turns off. So let's just kind of put ourselves there for a moment. Jesus and the boys, again, coming from the other side of the lake, they've just had this miraculous experience with Jesus. And as they come up onto the shore, there's this man on the hillside screaming, it says, and cutting himself with stones. Just He's, he's insane at the moment. And it says that at a word, Jesus just says, come out of him. Almost flippantly, be gone, go away. And this man with, with this demonic influence comes and falls at Jesus' feet. And it's actually the demons speaking to Jesus. And they say, they're begging him, hands and knees, please don't torture us. Please don't send us out of the area. Let, let us go into the pigs instead. And so Jesus says, fine, go ahead. And you remember the story, the pigs rush down the hillside and they all drown in the sea. And this, that part of the story, I just scratch my head at. I'm like, what, what do we even do with that? Like, how was that any better? I don't understand. I don't need to. It's okay. The people from the town hear what's happened, and they come, and they are terrified of this Jesus. And they actually, you, you would think about it, if we had someone in Elkins who was just randomly running about screaming, kind of terrorizing the city, the police had tried to subdue him, but he just keeps breaking the handcuffs, and like pepper spray doesn't work, none of it. He's just on the loose. And if Jesus came into town and just at a word healed this man, cast out everything that was oppressing him, and the man's restored to his right mind, think about how we would respond. Most of us would be like, that's amazing. Thank you, Jesus. And it would be crazy. But these people come, and they're terrified, even to the point where they go, you need to leave. We, we don't want you here. Was it because they didn't love this man? And they didn't want to see him restored? Church? Obviously not. They had been trying to subdue this man. I don't think out of like, we got to hurt him and we got to... Probably it started because they loved him. And his loved ones are going, he's hurting himself. He, he's self-mutilating. He's cutting himself with stones. We have to stop him because we love him. And then it probably escalated to, he's starting to scare and potentially even hurt other people. We need to stop him for the good of the town. And Jesus comes and he grants their wish. But there's something about the experience that leads the people to be terrified. It says that they were afraid and they asked him to leave. Thanks for what you did. Please get back in your boat and go. You're not welcome here. We don't want you here. It seems like a weird response, doesn't it? But it's a very common response that we find in the scriptures to Jesus. It's not so common today but you can't make it through too many stories in the Gospels and not see people having this common reaction of fear when they come into the presence of Jesus. The disciples in the boat, when Jesus calmed the storm, how does it say that they responded? We're going to look at the passage a little bit later. They were terrified. 
And they asked themselves, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? They were terrified. And they had been walking with Jesus for at least months at this point. And it left them terrified. How did, how did the demonic spirits act in Jesus' presence? Terrified. Begging him hands and knees. These are the same spirits that were overpowering any other man, that were ripping off chains and yet at the presence of Jesus, they're on their hands and knees begging him, please don't torture us. Please don't send us out of the area. We know who you are. Please don't do what you can do. Have mercy on us. We see the townspeople coming in again, what should be a joyous time. Yet fear is the response that they have to Jesus. Next week, we're going to look at a story about a woman who is healed by Jesus and her next uh, reaction to him, trembling with fear, falling on her hands and feet, her hands and knees in front of him. A very common reaction to Jesus in Scripture, again and again, fear. A not so common reaction for those of us in the church today, fear. Most of us don't know what it is to walk in the fear of the Lord. It is a missing component to most of our faith. Certainly here in the West, we have this idea of a domesticated God, a God that is safe, a God that is only love, a, a God who's kind of a pushover in a lot of ways, and he's just happy that we even showed up. You're welcome, God. But what we find in Scripture is this reaction of fear. Jesus helping people, fear. Jesus working miracles, fear. Jesus coming into the presence of even his enemies, they express fear. Yet an all too often uncommon reaction for us, fear. C.S. Lewis does a great job of trying to illustrate this idea of fear in the Lord uh, in his books, The Chronicles of Narnia, where, where Jesus is portrayed as what animal? It's like Jeopardy now. A lion. A lion. Some of our kids are reading through that right now, and they're like, oh, a lion, Aslan. And there is this fear that everyone has of Aslan, certainly the enemies of Aslan, but even those who walk with him, there's this fear. And they're, they're one of the most famous lines um, from The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is, is towards the end, some people are talking about Aslan, and they're trying to figure him out, and they go, yeah, but, but it's okay, because he's safe, right? And someone who's known Aslan longer says, no, 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 no. He's not safe. He is anything but safe, but he's good. We have this safe view of God that I think robs us in our faith. When was the last time we experienced fear of the Lord? Some may have this experience, but for most, I think it's a completely foreign concept. Yet it's one that you cannot turn the pages of Scripture without finding again and again and again. We know some passages like this, Proverbs 1.7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. We know these. You may even have some of these on your walls somewhere. It's very Christianese. But when was the last time that you experienced the fear of the Lord? Because the word is clear. That's where wisdom and understanding and knowledge, not just head knowledge, but truly knowing the Lord, 
begins with the fear of the Lord. We love to focus on the love and the grace and the mercy of the Lord, and we are, we are right to do so. But sometimes we do it to the neglect of this, this fear of the Lord. If we're going to become the, disciple, the disciples that we are called to become, we must learn to walk in the fear of the Lord. Solomon says it like this in the book of Ecclesiastes. He, Solomon was the most wise man who ever lived up to that point in time. God had gifted him with wisdom beyond any man who ever lived at that point. And Solomon did not use it very wisely. He decided, I'm going to spend my life just pursuing anything I think might make me happy just to see how it turns out. Almost like, like making a science experiment out of it. He chased women. He chased wealth and power and everything else just to see, does this make me happy? Does this make me happy? And the book of Ecclesiastes is him just kind of journaling his thoughts. I tried this and it didn't work. I tried this and it didn't work. I tried this and it didn't work. And here's how he ends the book of Ecclesiastes. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is, fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. He said, I have tried everything looking for fulfillment, and I'm telling you from experience, none of it worked. Here's the conclusion of my science experiment. If I had to sum all of life up, it would be this. Fear God and keep his commands. Does this really describe most of our relationships with God? I would tend to say no. Most of us don't really have a good understanding of what the fear of the Lord is. We're going to define the fear of the Lord because it can be a confusing thing. Because what's the most common command in Scripture? Fear not. Do not fear. It is the most often repeated command in Scripture. Angels of the Lord show up and the first thing they say is fear not. God shows up to people and the first thing that he tells them is fear not. This is a command that they're often given. Now, why does he have to give them the command? Because they're scared. <laughs> because when he shows up, they're fearful, and he has to set their mind at ease. Their natural reaction is fear, but he's always commanding them, fear not. But we can find these two kind of opposing commands to fear not, but also walk in the fear of the Lord. Especially in the Old Testament, in Proverbs and in Psalms, it is riddled with this idea of the fear of the Lord and how it's a good thing, it's a positive thing, and we have to try to find a way to reconcile fear not with walk in the fear of the Lord. Uh, Matthew chapter 10 is a, a great example of this tension that we have to walk in. Uh, the disciples just coming off of an experience with the Pharisees, uh, and the Pharisees did not like Jesus. They were plotting against him and, and the disciples as well. And here's what Jesus tells them. Therefore, don't be afraid of them, them being the Pharisees, since there is nothing covered that won't be uncovered, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. What you hear in a whisper, proclaim at the house, at the, on the housetops. Now, what he's saying there real quick is, look, be bold. Don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of the Pharisees and those that are plotting against us. But the things that you hear, even in a whisper, boldly proclaim from the housetops. Okay, he's encouraging them to live boldly. Don't fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Rather, and this is weird to us, 
fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell? Aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid, therefore. You are worth more than many sparrows. In that passage, Jesus told them, fear God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But then he told them, don't worry because you're worth more than sparrows. Fear not. And, And we go, Jesus, I don't think you're following your own line of thinking here. You can't command us to be scared and not to be scared at the same time. How does this work? 1 John 4.18, excuse me, another very popular verse. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears has not reached perfection in love. So how do we walk in the fear of the Lord as many passages tell us to, as Jesus just told his disciples in Matthew 10, and yet at the same time, there's no fear in love. If we have fear, we've not reached perfection of love. They they seem incongruous. They seem like they don't match up. Yet either scriptures of two minds or there's something about it that we don't understand. So let's take a minute and let's just define the fear of the Lord. And this is my definition. There's probably far more eloquent ones out there. But according to 1 John 4.18, like it says, the fear of the Lord is not about punishment. Because this fear he's talking about, there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment. For those of us who are disciples of Jesus, who are walking with Jesus, He tells us that we're not to fear punishment. The fear of the Lord is not because what if God comes in and just starts smacking me down for my sin? What if God just has a bad day and gets angry and I take the brunt of it? God is not a capricious God. That word capricious just means like fly off the handle at a whim. Most of the gods back in the days when the scripture were being written, the Greek and Roman gods, they saw, like, they saw themselves as like the gods treat us as playthings. We're just pieces on a chessboard. And sometimes they're just going to do mean things to us just for fun. And the, the, the writers of scripture are very clear. This is not the God we serve. We serve a God who is just. We serve a God who is merciful. We don't have to worry about punishment. We don't have to worry about what if he just woke up on the wrong side of his heavenly bed And because he's having a bad day, we're all having a bad day. It's not that kind of fear. But the fear of the Lord is about giving over control. There is nothing scarier, certainly to any American, but I think to any human, than to give over control to someone else. To walk in the fear of the Lord is to recognize you're in control and I'm not. This will bring about fear because all of the what ifs will start coming. What if he asks me to do this? What if he asks me to stop doing that? What if he asks me to give this up? What if he asks me to sell that? What if, what if, what if? Fear is a natural reaction because we have to understand that he is in control and I am not. Not what if he just, uh, I made a mistake yesterday and he's probably waiting to drop the hammer on me. No. But what we see here in this story in Matthew chapter 5 is the townspeople, remember, they had tried to subdue this man, right? They had given it everything they had. 
They had groups of people that had tried to tackle him and hold him down. And I mean, he's just breaking chains with his bare hands. And then Jesus comes and at a word overcomes the evil and restores the man. The townspeople were keenly aware something completely other is in our presence right now. He had the ability with a word to do what we couldn't do with an army. That is a terrifying place to be. We are in the presence of someone so much greater than we are. The natural response is fear. All of the sudden, when I see him as he really is, when I see him as powerful and as far above me as he really is, I begin to see myself as I really am. And fear is a natural response. Fear is even a healthy response. Is this making sense, church? Okay. When we experience the presence of the Lord, the unadulterated, unfiltered presence of the Lord, fear should be a natural response. It is good and it is healthy. If we're going to become the disciples that we're called to become, we must learn to walk in the fear of the Lord. There are certain qualities that only of the fear of the Lord can produce in our lives. Without walking in the fear of the Lord, we will never become fully devoted. We will never become fully developed. We will never become fully mature disciples. We will never become the people that we were created to be as long as we keep ignoring this aspect of our faith. As long as we keep treating God like a domesticated house cat, this wish giver, this one who like, man, he's just been sitting in this room waiting for us all week and he's just so happy that he's not alone anymore. Thank you for coming. We serve an uncaged lion who is dangerous, not only to his enemies, but even to us. What is the call that Jesus gives anyone that would come after him? Deny yourself, take up your cross, death to self, and follow me. It is a dangerous call to follow God. He is calling us to die to ourselves, and that should make us afraid. When we understand what he's calling us to and who he's calling us to become, the human part of us should be terrified, should be trembling. That means I have to die so that he will live through me. That is a scary thing. That is a fearful thing. And that is the best place that we can be because now we're really wrestling with who he is. Not some pretend God who just grants wishes if we ask in the right way. But this God who is far above and beyond me. And when he's in the room, I am keenly aware that I am not in control. Without walking in the fear of the Lord, we will continue to seek the minimum required of us. How do I just keep this God happy and quiet? If I go to church once a month, is that enough? If I read my Bible twice a week, does that kind of shut him up and make him happy? Without understanding, without experiencing God in his fullness and the fear of the Lord, we'll continue to just try to search for that minimum requirement. How do I just keep him from being angry at me? And then he'll keep to his stuff and I can keep to mine. We'll never grow past that. We will continue to attempt to be half in on the kingdom. Yeah, I like what Jesus says, but I also kind of got my own thing going on. Again, so how do I just kind of keep him happy? Because I want to go to heaven someday, 
Hell sounds scary. I don't like that thought. And so how do I do enough to keep him happy? How do I be involved in the kingdom enough to kind of keep him appeased, but still get to do what I want to do? When the king is in the room, all of a sudden what I want to do, I see it for what it is. It is petty and it is small, and actually it's killing me. I'm called to die to self because he's in charge and I'm not. We will continue to toy around with our sin because he's going to forgive me anyway, right? He's gracious and he's merciful. I'll just, I'll pray tomorrow and he'll be fine with me and we'll be okay. That's not what we find in scripture. We will continue as babes in our faith, satisfied with spiritual milk. Because why do we need to grow anymore? He's happy with whatever, whatever scraps I've thrown to him. Wrong. He is an uncontrollable force. He is an uncaged lion in our midst. And if we were smart, we'd all have hard hats on right now. Because he is a dangerous God who might call us to do dangerous things. And we should be fearful of it. Again, not because, oh, what if he's just grumpy, but because he has called me to death to self, and that's a scary thing. And if he's in the room, I can't look at him and go, nah, I'd rather not. For him to be present is for him to be in control, and for me to be out of control is a fearful place to be. If we're going to become the disciples we're called to become, we must learn to walk in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord should produce awe in our lives. We, back to uh, two weeks ago, when we were walking through Mark chapter 4, Jesus calms the storm, and the disciples were terrified, and they asked one another, who then is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. Some people equate fear with just awe. It's just a sense of awe. I think that's a misunderstanding. But awe is certainly a product of the fear of the Lord. When Jesus shows up in power, we will be in awe of him, just like the disciples were. They knew Jesus as well as anyone on the earth, probably better. Yet when they saw him in power, when they saw him simply speak to the wind and the waves, they were overcome with awe. They saw the proper perspective. He is great and we are tiny. And they were terrified. There was awe. Who is this man? He's not who we thought he was. The word awe is kind of a root word. We get some other words from it. We love the word awesome. Our God is an awesome God. We have no problem with that. But there's another word that comes from awe, awful. That is the the terrifying side of it. Our God is an awful God. We've kind of just taken awful and made it to mean just bad. But the word is actually expresses a lot more than that. To be full of awe, to be kind of quaking in your boots because you are in such awe of this being. He is that much greater than me. And the clearer I see him, the more clearly I see myself. And I am in awe of him. He is completely other. He is greater in every way. He is in control. To experience the presence of the Lord should produce fear, which, which does make us in awe of him. The fear of the Lord should produce faith. 
going back to the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites, as they were fleeing Egypt and they go through the Red Sea, God does this amazing thing in their midst where he parts the Red Sea so that they're able to walk through on dry ground. They get to the other side and the armies of Egypt are chasing after them and God allows the Red Sea to collapse in on them, utterly destroying the army. Israel has just been saved by the Lord their God. And here is their response in Exodus 14, 31. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egypts, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and his servant Moses. There was this faith that was built up through their fear of the Lord. They saw God working. They saw that he is obviously in control. There is nothing he can't do. Laws of nature mean nothing to him. He is bigger than anything we could have imagined. He is more powerful than anything we could have imagined. He's in control. What he says, he will do. And they feared, but then it says that they also believed in him. Because here's the pivotal point when it comes to the fear of the Lord. First is we see him as he is. Fear is our natural response. But then when we come to realize that he is also for me, it builds this faith. What can the enemy do? We, we sang a song, um, Dwell, and in the bridge, it comes from Isaiah uh, 51, I think it is, no weapon formed against me will prosper. Why? Not because I'm awesome. Any weapon formed against me will probably take me down. I'm not that tough. I'm not even talking physical. <laughs> like, I, I might look big. I can't fight anybody. Like, any weapon formed against me will take me out. But no weapon formed against me can do anything against him. If he is for me, who can be against me? So this fear of the Lord, man, the biggest dog on the block is on my side. Now, I'm not going to treat him like some little puppy dog and just like roll him over and try to rub his belly. He is a fierce beast, but he is for me. And this should build our faith. What can the enemy bring against me? The, the demon-possessed man uh, that Jesus came into contact with, they had tried everything they knew and none of it worked. Jesus speaks a word, the man is healed, and now all of a sudden the man realizes, this same Jesus is for me. I want to follow him anywhere. He has power over a legion of demons. And he is for me. And the man tells him, I will follow you anywhere. Please let me come with you. And Jesus actually sends him off to become the first evangelist. Go back to your home and tell the people what you've seen. Tell the people all that God has done for you. But this fear, God showing up in power, produces fear. But when we come to a point of realizing, because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, that this unthinkable, uncomprehendable power is on our side, is for us, it should build our faith. That Matthew chapter 10 passage that we looked at uh, where Jesus tells them, look, don't fear the Pharisees. What, what can they do? Don't fear anyone that can just kill the body. Fear the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. Remember who it is you're following. The God who spoke heaven and earth into being and they would have been fearful. But then he says this, but don't worry, not a sparrow falls from the sky without your father knowing it. And you are worth far more than many sparrows. It says he even knows the numbers of hairs on your head. 
There's this idea of fear, but don't worry because that fear is on, that, that fearful being is on your side. The one who is all powerful, the one who, when he's in the room, you feel small in the best way possible. When you begin to realize that he is for you, he is working everything for the good of those who love him and called according to his purpose. The fear of the Lord brings faith. One of my favorite stories, Acts chapter 4. Uh, Peter and John have just gone through. Uh, they've been persecuted for their faith. They've been flogged. They've been told by the very people that killed Jesus months before, if you speak any more in Jesus' name, we're going to kill you. And they come back and they start praying with the church and they pray for boldness. They pray, God, show up and do what only you can do. They say, stretch out your hand and work signs and miracles and wonders. And then this happens. When they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. We hear that sometimes and we go, man, I wish this place would be shaken. I would love to come in here on a Sunday morning and God's presence was so palpable that this place just shook. But now put yourself in a seat with the building shaking all around you. Terrifying. God didn't tell him, don't worry, it's going to shake, but don't worry, it'll be okay. He showed up and the place shook. The foundations of the building shook. This would have been a terrible place to be in the best way possible. And they came from it preaching his message with boldness. Their faith was built up because this terrifying God showed up in their presence. Many of us wonder why our faith is so meek, is so small. And I think many times it's because we have this view of God that he's a little pussycat. He is uncontrollable. He is uncaged. And for those of us in this room who are following Jesus, he is for us. If that doesn't build our faith, we have some questions to answer. The fear of the Lord should produce holiness. It should work itself out in victory over sin in our lives. Proverbs 14, 27 says this, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, turning people away from the snares of death. When we see God for who he really is, when he shows up in our presence, the thought of toying around with sin, it's unthinkable. When we see God in his holiness, we will fear because we will see ourselves in our lack of holiness but when we see that same God inviting us in, our natural desire is to put down our sin, is to die to self and to walk with him, to become like him, to experience the victory that this unchained God offers to us. Philippians 2, 12 to 13. So then, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, to enabling you both to desire and to work out his good purpose. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Because you are working out your salvation in the presence of a holy God. But take courage, because that same God is working in you. Another uh, version says, to will and to act according to his good purpose. This terrifying, holy God that should cause us to shudder as we work out our salvation 
is on our side, giving us victory over sin, giving us the ability to desire holiness and giving us the ability to walk in holiness. The fear of the Lord should produce holiness in our lives. Proverbs 8.13, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. Now, we could read that and uh, go, well, maybe he just hated it when he saw it in others. Don't I hate those who talk like that? Don't I hate those who have arrogant pride? Maybe. A healthier way to look at it? To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate my own arrogant pride. I hate my own evil conduct. I hate my own perverse speech because it puts me at odds with this incredible God. He desires to be for me and my sin puts me in opposition to him. And he's too great. I would never wish to go toe to toe with him. Lord, take my sin from me. Help me to walk in holiness. Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. This is one of the harshest passages that I know in scripture. It's one of the hardest to wrestle through. Let's take a look at it. For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. If anyone disregards Moses' laws, he dies without mercy, based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. If in reading that, there's not something inside of you going, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't think you read it correctly. What a terrible thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. What the writer of Hebrews is talking about there is for those who, who are treating sin like it's no big deal. God doesn't really care. He's going to forgive anyway. He says, for those who take advantage of the grace of God. For those who refuse to see the commands from the living God as they truly are. He says, the Lord will have vengeance and punishment and what a terrible thing it will be to fall into his hands if that doesn't cause us to stop and reflect on our own life. God, are there places where I'm, I'm treating what Jesus did for me as common, as everyday, as profane. God, show me. Walk with me. Help me to put on holiness in those areas because I never want to fall into the hands of the living God holding on to my sin, saying I'd rather have this than you. The fear of the Lord produces holiness in the life of the believer. Finally, the last one, and this is kind of the, the flip side of the coin. Mishandled fear of the Lord produces distance. Let's look at Israel. We saw in Exodus 14, they just come through the Red Sea, and they see God do this incredible stuff, and it says that they feared him and believed in him at the same time because they saw the works of God. A couple weeks later, Exodus 20. All the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning. God had come onto Mount Sinai, and there was this shroud 
of, of a black cloud with lightning and thunder, and it says that the mountain itself was shaking. God was there, and the people were terrified. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled, and they stood in a distance. You speak to us, and we will listen, they said to Moses. But don't let God speak to us, or we will die. Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Mishandled fear of the Lord creates distance. God, basically what they were saying, and we'll see this played out in Israel, God is calling us to a holiness that we don't really want for ourselves. God is calling us to a standard that we think is too far, and he's too big and too scary, so we're just going to turn and walk the other way. Shortly after this, they create the golden calf, and they start worshiping this false god because they saw God for who he was, huge, terrible, uncontrollable, and they chose to turn a blind eye. We'd rather just do things the old way. And they went back to serving the gods of Egypt like they had before because they mishandled the fear of God. Instead of taking that as it was, as an invitation to holiness, to draw near to this terrible God, knowing that he would make them holy, they choose to turn and run. Back to the story in Mark chapter 5. How did the demons handle the presence of Jesus? Fearful, falling on their knees, begging him. And what did they beg him? Send us away. Now, look, I'm not going to get into the theology of like, could the demons have repented and said, oh, Jesus, we're so sorry. Like, I don't, I don't see that anywhere in scripture. But their natural response to Jesus was send us away. We don't even want to be in your presence. Send us away. The townspeople come to Jesus, recognizing he was able to do with a word what we couldn't do with our whole group of people, with this mob that we had put together. He is so much greater than us, I don't even want to be in his presence. Go away, Jesus. Get back in your boat. Go away. Thanks for what you did. We appreciate it. Please leave. You're too out of control. You're too big for us. We don't want what you're selling. Go away. We've talked about the Pharisees earlier in, in the book of Mark. They were threatened by the kingdom message. Jesus came displaying miracles, and their response was fear and anger because his kingdom message threatened their way of life. We would rather be in control than walk with you. Walk with the one who is healing the lame and the blind and the sick. One who is teaching with power and authority. We'd rather see him dead. We'd rather just not deal with him anymore. And it's because they were afraid of him. But they mishandled the fear. With me. I desire control. And when I experience the presence of the Lord and the fear of the Lord, there is always a temptation to just look away. To walk away and go, no, thank you, I'm not interested. That's too much. I still want to be in control. And so I'm going to close off parts of my life. You can have my Sunday mornings. You can have a couple minutes in the morning. I'll sit down and I'll read. But don't touch these areas. These are mine. I'm in control here. And I hold God at a distance. And God is, God is a gentleman. He will never force himself on you. You tell him back up, you tell him leave the city, and he will leave to your detriment. 
What is your response to the unfiltered presence of God in your life? How do you respond to the fear of the Lord? Or maybe have you even ever experienced the fear of the Lord? When he shows up, when his presence is made known, there will be a sense of fear because he is so other, he is so far above. How do we respond to it? If we're going to become the disciples we're called to become, we must learn to walk in the fear of the Lord. So let's take a little bit of time now and just talk. This is where you guys can can speak up. The first thing that I want to do is just uh, give you guys opportunity. What questions do you have about the fear of the Lord? If you came in already just fully understanding this, you should be preaching. I still have a bunch of questions. There's still a bunch of things that I am trying to work out. What questions do you have about the fear of the Lord? If you guys, if you guys say none, we'll just pray and go home. It's okay. Tim? Sure. No, what, what you're saying makes sense, and I think there's probably a lot of people that would feel the same way, is, okay, so I grew up in a church that was hellfire and brimstone, and it was all fear of the Lord, but in the wrong direction. It was a misunderstanding of the fear of the Lord, because it was all about, he's going to get mad and punish you. And so you have that First John 4.18 that says, uh, this, kind, this kind of fear involves punishment, and that's not the kind of fear that God's talking about. God's love drives that fear out. And so how do you marry this fear of the Lord with his mercy and his grace? Uh, I, I think that that's a great question. I have some thoughts, but I'm, I'm going to hold off. Um, I'd love to hear what someone else has to say.
Yeah, there's the, the writer of Hebrews who wrote, again, for, for me, it's kind of that chilling passage about treating lightly uh, the presence of the Lord and what Jesus did on the cross and going, oh, it's just a little sin. And, and he talks about like, man, for those who trample underfoot, what a terrible thing it is to fall into the hands of the living God. That same author then later says, but now we boldly enter into the throne of grace. And so there's this, this fear, this man, like God is this uncontrollable God. And God is, you read through the, the Old Testament, especially in some passages in the New Testament, there is this wrath of God that is a very real thing. But yet there's this grace of God and this mercy of God. And we struggle to put them together. And I think oftentimes because we do is it's almost like there's only 100 points that God has. And he has to give maybe 50 to wrath and 50 to mercy. The thing that we can't comprehend is God is 100% in every direction. He is 100% wrath and just and gracious and merciful all at the same time. And this is part of where that fear comes from is going, he doesn't think like I do. He doesn't fit into my box because I can't be 100% just and gracious at the same time. I have to pick one. But God has this ability Again, he is so far bigger than us to be the thing that terrifies us and the thing that comforts us at the same time. To be the God who we go, man, he will punish sin. And that is a scary thought because I am a sinful person. But he has also promised grace to those who, who follow him. And it's because of this terrible nature of God setting this dark background that the cross shines out like it does. If God wasn't this truly terrifying being, then his grace and mercy would mean nothing because there's no real consequences, right? He's just a pussycat. He is in control. He is terrible. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But praise be to God because he shows mercy on us through Jesus Christ. And this is a, it's a tough one for us to walk in both because none of us are able to present the same thing to others. We're limited, and he's not. I'm talking too much. Sorry. What questions do we have? What are some things that we go, man, I, just, I don't know how to put these together? Sure. Uh, I see, if you guys couldn't hear, she said, you know, sometimes you get in the presence of God and you feel just plain small, but then your own insecurities kick in. 
and you go, well, who am I anyway? Well, I'll just, and it's, it's hard to even desire to lean in sometimes because you, you just feel unworthy, which is true. But sometimes we can use that to beat ourselves up a little bit. And I think of uh, David in the Psalms where he's talking with God at one point and he goes, who is man that you are mindful of me? He goes, we, we, we are a speck and yet you concern yourselves with us. Who is man that you're mindful of me? And that leads him into worship. Instead of going, I'm nothing, he goes, I'm nothing, and yet you care for me. How good must you be? Not, this isn't the time to build ourselves up and go, man, I must be more than I thought I was because God cares about me. God, who am I that you would think of me? But I have nothing but praise for you because I know the truth. You are mindful of me. You do care for me. You know the number of hairs on my head, Jesus says. I'm so insignificant, yet you are so loving and gracious that you choose to care for me. The only natural response to that is praise. I will lift up your name. What a good God you are. How worthy of being followed you are. But we have to be able to turn that corner of instead of just going, you're right, I'm worthless, no, 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 that's not what Jesus, again, Matthew 10, where Jesus is going, man, it's this fear and following, and he says, he cares for you more than any other created thing. Knows the number of hairs on your head. That's how precious you are to him. He is good enough that he even cares about you. Let's turn and praise him for that. Yeah, sometimes we have some unhealed wounds that lead to a mistrust of God that are going to have to be dealt with. If we're, if we're really just going to invite God and allow, like, we want to see you as you truly are, there's going to be some hard conversations we need to have with him that go, but where were you here? But how were you good here? He's not scared of those questions. We are. But until we deal with some of those, and sometimes that's bringing brothers and sisters along to pray with us and to walk with us into that, but sometimes it's just plain our own wounds that cause us, man, anything that even looks like fear. No, 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 no. I'm running away. That's going to hurt too much. Cheryl, then Abe over here.
What's the name of the book? Fully Alive by Susie Larson, in case you guys missed it. Abe, do you have your hand up? Sure. Yeah, part, part of the battle is we recognize our own insignificance when we realize, like, man, this God is other. He's so big and I'm so small. A natural response, a sinful but natural response we're going to have is I better grab for every bit of control that I can have. Because I'm so small, I better just take what I can get. And so we start trying to power up and, and do some things ourselves, which is detrimental, which, which creates distance, which is pushing God away. And so the question then, how do we practically fight those things? When we recognize our own insignificance, how do we then submit that to the Lord? I'm, I'm going to ask you guys, and it, I'll put this next question up here because it, it ties in with all of these. How do we practically walk in the fear of the Lord? Okay, because it's one thing to have it in theory. How do we actually practice walking in the presence of the Lord, in, in the fear of the Lord? So what do you guys think? Yeah, I, I think too often we, and we've talked about this some in Mark already, when we think about faith, we almost equate faith as a, a lack of fear. Like, I just felt super comfortable doing whatever the Lord asked me to. Like the, like the, the, the disciples, when they are, are being punished by the Pharisees and they come away praising the Lord for it, we almost put on them like, so therefore they weren't scared at all. Everything was just totally fine. Uh, what we find them is them going, hey God, you know what they're saying against us. And obviously we're pretty scared by it, but we're going to choose faith in this point. I'm going to take what I know. And even though it doesn't feel natural, even though it feels scary, even though like your word says that it'll be fine if I say, Lord, show me your presence. It says that I'll be better for it. And even though that terrifies me, am I going to choose to walk into it? Because I know that you are good. 
Faith is simply just putting into action the truth that God says. Doesn't mean you feel a certain way. Doesn't mean, okay, I'm not scared anymore. Everything feels great. It's all rainbows and unicorns. I am terrified. And because I don't know what's going to happen, because I'm scared, because I feel insignificant, now I have the opportunity to practice faith, which says, even though this is how I feel, what you say is true. And so I'm going to take a step in that direction. Even though it doesn't feel it, even though I'm still terrified that if you show up, I'm just going to be consumed by fire. Your word says that you are gracious and that we can boldly come before your throne. And so I'm going to act as if that is true, not how I feel is true. Does that make sense? Sam knows. You want to be scared of the Lord, read Revelation. <laughs> done and done. I actually had an experience when I was a, a really young believer, uh, maybe just a couple weeks old, and I had the great idea, I'm going to Revelation. Uh, yeah. So I was in Revelation 5, uh, and John is describing this scene in heaven uh, where all of the elders fall before the Lord on their hands and uh, on their faces, and they lay their crowns at his feet, and they're singing, holy, holy, holy. And then he says, and there was these four beasts that were there. And he describes these beasts, wings everywhere, and it says and they were covered with eyes on every side. And I remember reading it, and I actually chuckled and said, that sounds silly. I was instantly struck with the fear of the Lord. Because I just called the word of God silly. I, I didn't take it for what it was. God's truth given to me. I handled it like I would any other story, any other book, and the fear of the Lord came on me. I remember laying in my bed, like actually kind of trembling, just going, I had no idea. I, I didn't even know. But he showed up, and I was put in my place, again, in the best way possible. And you better believe I have taken seriously the word of the Lord ever since then. It was the, it's still one of my fondest memories of my Christian life is laying in my bed, shaking, terrified, because God showed up, 
And he also told me, I love you. It's okay. He forgave and he walked with me, but that experience has stuck with me. And when I read some of these passages, and it's not a weird thing to me that the townspeople were in fear. I go, man, if, if I had seen something that my tiny brain could not wrap itself around, of course I would be scared. It shows what a messed up view we have, that we think Jesus would come in here, work miracles, and we would just be like, cue up another song, here we go. We would be terrified in the best way possible, and it would probably lead to the deepest worship we've ever had. Sorry, any other, how, how do we practically walk in the fear of the Lord? I don't want to cut anyone off. I'll tell you, the, the best way that I know to practically walk in the fear of the Lord is simply to ask him to make himself known regularly and mean it. Lord, I want to see you as you are, not as I want you to be. Would you show yourself to me? That is a ridiculously dangerous and incredibly faithful prayer. Would you show up in my midst, in the times that we're together, in my quiet times, when I'm at work, whatever it may be, would you show up as you truly are? I want to see you for who you are, not for who I want you to be. If you will pray that prayer, I promise you, you will learn to walk in the fear of the Lord and you will be better for it every step of the way. There's a, a good book I'll, I'll recommend to you guys uh, just by way of closing. Um, by I, I think I've recommended it before. It's by an author named Drew Dick and the, uh, the title is Yawning at Tigers. And it's just about how, like, we come to church and we are in the presence of a wild animal, and yet how many services do we just yawn through? How many times are we reading scripture? Is it just la-di-da, yet we're in the presence of a tiger? It's a really, really well-written book, easy, easy to, to get a hold of, and just kind of helps walk into this fear of the Lord and, and the depth of faith and relationship that it can produce. So I'd recommend that to you guys uh, as a practical step. And like I said, then just praying regularly, God, may I see you as you truly are, not as I've kind of created you to be. He will answer that prayer. Let me pray, and then we're going to uh, close with a song. Lord Jesus, you are not safe, but you are good. God, the more clearly I see you, the, the greater I see you, the more powerful and uncontrollable I see you. And then to have the thought that you were on my side. That all of those things that I am naturally fearful of, because what if, what if, what if, you are using all of those same qualities on my behalf. No weapon formed against me can prosper because you are that uncontrollable God. I have no need to fear anything or anyone on this earth 
because you are that untamed lion. If you are for me, God, who can be against me? May we learn to walk in this faith, God. May we see you as you truly are. And Lord, as we shake in our little boots, may you then place your hand on us and build our faith. Use that awe, use that fear, God, to show us how loved we are. When we feel those feelings of insignificance in your presence, may we be overcome by gratitude and praise that you would be mindful of us, that you would even think of us, let alone know the number of hairs on our head. We are grateful, God, that you use your power, your terrible power, to work things for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. May we see you as you truly are, and may it result in deep worship and praise. Be glorified in us, I pray, in Jesus' name.